Coming up on Tech Nation, we learn that the humble science of botany is not for the timid. It takes sturdy, motivated, and determined botanists to get their plant samples and get out. First, science journalist Melissa Seveny takes us back to the 1930s with her book, Brave the Wild River, the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon. Then, present-day medical botanist, Emory professor, Dr. Cassandra Quave, talks about their fieldwork, which sometimes requires her to carry a gun, and at others, leads her to speak with shaman. All this, coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, I spoke with David Epstein, a senior writer from Sports Illustrated, covering sports science, medicine, and Olympic sports, and the author of The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. I wondered, now that we have all these genetic tests, does trying out for a high school sport mean just having to give a DNA sample instead of playing for five practices before you're cut? Hopefully not. So we could be doing that, and there is direct-to-consumer marketing of genetic tests. But the fact is, you'd be better off using a stopwatch to see how good a, good a runner your kid is than using the genetic test. You know, why test it indirectly when you can test it directly? But the genetic tests that I actually think could be more useful for high school teams are for, for example, a gene called APOE, where if you have a certain version, we know you're at increased risk of brain damage if you suffer concussions while playing football. Maybe that doesn't mean you should be barred from playing, but maybe you'd like to think about other sports or about taking fewer hits in practice. So that's the kind of screening I think that actually could be useful. But now, having realized how complex genetics uh, is, scientists have come up with more innovative methods to find the networks of genes that influence attributes. And in exercise genetics, those networks are often not genes that say, well, you have this athletic trait, but genes that say, you will profit very rapidly and very much from this type of training, more so maybe than your training partner. Exactly, David. You know, we've been all looking at each other saying, well, the 10,000-hour rule, you know, Anders Ericsson's 10,000-hour rule to become an expert or to, to be trained to, in expertise to get there. It turns out that if we are training, your training and my training, your 10,000 hours and my 10,000 hours, those are two different things. That's exactly right. That's just as medical genetics showed us that because, for example, I have a different version of the gene of a gene involved in acetaminophen metabolism than you do, my one Tylenol might be more or less effective than your one Tylenol. Exercise genetics is finding the exact same thing. No two people, not even brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters, have even close to identical genomes. And so no two people respond to the medicine of exercise the same way and training. So that one person's hour can be completely distinct from another person's hour of training. And Anders Ericsson, actually, I, I organized a panel with him at the American College of Sports Medicine Conference in 2012, and he was quite adamant that he uh, never called 10,000 hours a rule. And he recently wrote a paper noting that the rising popularity of that phrase uh, he attributed to Malcolm Gladwell's outliers, which he said 
partly misconstrued his conclusions. Also, in what you said about uh, training, it's like, what kind of training? I mean, I'm reminded of the musician Bach who wanted to stretch his right hand uh, so he could get yeah. even longer, so he could play things that no one else could, end up weakening it. And so if you listen to Bach, you'll see there's a pretty heavy left hand and a not very, not very heavy right hand to the music. Hmm. And it's like, wow, that was the wrong training thing to try to get what you wanted with your particular situation. So you have to match that up as well. That, that's really interesting you mentioned that, and obviously I tended to focus more so on physical traits, but also on chess and mention music a little bit in the book. I think that idea that you're hitting on is a very important one, that because we each have a completely unique genome, for optimal results, we'd each have completely unique training and, and unique environment tailored to our genome. And I hope that's sort of where we'll get with the technology, that the promise of personalized medicine that was heralded a decade ago with the sequencing of the human genome, but really didn't come along as quickly as the forecasts. I, th I think now we're taking major steps there and, and in exercise uh, genetics as much as anywhere. So maybe we will have genetically tailored training. And, and that may sound a little scary, but if that means that we can help everyone get the best out of their unique genome, I think that would be fantastic. This 2013 Tech Nation interview features David Epstein, the author of The Sports Gene. Today, he's an investigative reporter at ProPublica, and his most recent book is the New York Times bestseller, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, you might know science journalist Melissa Seveny from her earlier books, Under Desert Skies and Mythical River. Today, she takes us on an unprecedented science expedition down the untamed Colorado River and into the Grand Canyon in the 1930s, before all those dams. Her book is Brave the Wild River, the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon. Then, present-day medical botany. That doesn't sound too threatening, until you remember to pack your pistol as well as other protective gear for what you may find in the wilds. Here's where science brings today's technology to the knowledge of the past. Emory professor Dr. Cassandra Quave talks about her experiences in The Plant Hunter, a scientist's quest for nature's next medicines. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now... Melissa Seveny. Melissa, welcome to Tech Nation. Glad to be here. I was eyeing your book when all the current media coverage started emerging about the dams and reservoirs on the Colorado River. Terrible problems. Droughts, too much water, silt. What's the relationship between the Colorado River today and the Grand Canyon? 
so much has changed um, between now and 1938, which is when this this book, Brave the Wild River, is set. Um, really, everything has changed from kind of an ecological standpoint. You know, these big dams have gone up on the river, which you know, changes upstream, obviously, you end up with a reservoir instead of a river, but a lot of people don't know it actually changes the downriver section as well. You no longer get these big floods coming through. You don't get the dry seasons where the river would kind of almost vanish away. Instead, the water is very steady and it's very cold. And that has ripple effects in the ecology that, that really we're still studying and still trying to work out. Now, take us back to 1938, and that's the time of your book. What was the state or the status of the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon then? I mean, that's 80 years ago. Yeah, um, I mean... So in 1938, it was a very kind of wild river, an uncontrolled river. Um, it was just the start of the dam building era. So um, so Hoover Dam, which at the time was called Boulder Dam, had been built, but it was still filling. Um, and that's downriver from the Grand Canyon. That's just downriver from the Grand Canyon near Las Vegas area. Um, and so the reservoir behind that, Lake Mead, was just starting to fill up. But there weren't a lot of other dams on the river. So upriver from that point, um, it was it was very wild and the water was very high. The characters that I'm writing about decided to leave on their trip at, at high summer, really like at the height of the flood water. And so they hit it when it was incredibly high water, the kind of water that we don't see very often today. Now, you write that they had standing waves big enough to swallow a boat whole. I don't even know what a standing wave is. And an average drop at over 1,500 miles, roughly, every mile it dropped nine feet so you had to be going through rapids and falls, all kinds of things for 1,500 miles. Right, right. I'm told from people who are more experienced at, at whitewater river rafting than I am that there's there's rivers in, in the United States that are much more steep than that um, and, you know, much higher water. Um, but what's unique about this river is, you know, there's these long, long stretches of water where it's it's very still and it's very calm and it's very peaceful. And then suddenly there are these rapids and the rapids are mostly created by these tributaries that bring in boulders and sand and dirt. And so they're constantly being reshaped. You never really know what you're going to get when you're approaching a, a big rapid in the Grand Canyon. Um, so it was really, you know, it's incredible to experience um, running this river, which I, I did myself for research for this book. Um, and yeah, it's just really an undescribable experience. Well, all of this is somewhere on the spectrum from idyllic to completely frightening. <laughs> I couldn't help reading the very first quote you put in the frontispiece of the book. It's quoting Roy Chapman Andrews of the Explorers Club in 1932, just a few years before this trip we're writing about. And he says, I know of no more effective way to wreck an expedition than to put in one woman, or worse still, two. Now, was this just a coincidence, or was he talking about the two particular women we're talking about today, Lois Jodder and her mentor, Elzada Clover? Who were they? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I found that quote, I knew I had to use it right right in the front of the book um, because it was so perfect. But it, it was a, a coincidence, um, or, or maybe it's better to say it was simply the attitude at the time that women shouldn't go off and, and go exploring in, in wild places. So these two women, Elzada Clover and Lois Jodder, they were both botanists at the University of Michigan. Um, Elzada was in her 40s. Um, she had a PhD in botany. She was 
kind of obsessed with plants. That was really her whole life. And she had this dream that she was going to collect uh, cactus. She wanted to make a complete cactus collection, all of the cactus in the Southwest. And so she wasn't really getting a lot of support from her university to do this project. She was out um, in Utah collecting cactus in 1937 when she met a man named Norm Nevels. And Norm Nevels also had a dream. He wanted to start a commercial river running business on the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. And he had never done it before, but they sit around and start talking and realize that they could go do this together. Norm Nevels could build the boats and recruit some boatmen and they could go down the river and Elzada would have a chance to collect her plants. So she went back to the University of Michigan. Um, she knew she had to invite another woman to go along because it wouldn't be appropriate for her. Wouldn't be proper. No. <laughs> wouldn't be proper for her to disappear into the wilderness with a group of strange men. So she invites Lois Jotter, who is, you know, a dear friend, a student of hers, a former roommate. Um, they were very close. Um, Lois is just 24 years old. She writes this wonderful series of letters to her father before the trip, trying to convince him to let her go, um, because everyone knew that this was kind of a risky thing to do. Again, long before we had commercial expeditions going down these rivers, and they would be the first non-native women to succeed if they succeeded in that trip. So everyone was pretty nervous about it. But they had this dream, they wanted to get these plants, and so off they go. Now, I keep going back to the the setting for this river journey at the time, only 12 expeditions had successfully traveled the river. That's 50 men. What were those earlier expeditions doing compared to what these gals were doing? Right. So there were about a dozen expeditions between John Wesley Powell going down the river in 1869 um, and my my folks, my women going down the river in 1938. Um, so a pretty long stretch of time to just have, you know, a dozen expeditions tackle the Grand Canyon. And I should say, of course, indigenous people in this region have been running this river long, long before that. Um, so the Navajo and the Hopi have stories of, of people who ran through the Grand Canyon and all kinds of interesting craft um, so that history is is there. For for these women, what they were doing was a little different um, than what the the other scientists and explorers who came before them were doing. So, you know, John Wesley Powell was a geologist. He wanted to do science, but he pretty much ended up just kind of clinging to the boat and getting through. Um, he was pretty disappointed in the amount of scientific work he was able to do. The other groups that came after him were very interested in finding ways to really kind of exploit the river. They wanted to survey for dams or even for a railroad to lay along the side of the river. Um, you know, they had ideas of how this region was sort of going to be developed or used. And what Elzada and Lois were doing um, was, was collecting plants. They wanted to make a scientific survey. And so they were really just interested in understanding what was there, what the ecology was like. And that's a little bit different than what people before them had done. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is science journalist Melissa Seveny. You might know her from her books, Under Desert Skies or Mythical River. She's here today with Brave the Wild River, the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon. Now, take us down this river in the sense of they weren't just lounging in boats and occasionally saying, kind of go close to shore and I'll pick up something and throw it in my bag. Tell us what they were doing as botanists. 
Right. Yeah. It was a pretty intense journey, uh, more than 600 miles. Um, they started on the Green River from the town of Green River, Utah, um, and then hit the confluence with the Colorado at the head of Cataract Canyon. And through Cataract Canyon, very high water, very big waves through Glen Canyon, which wasn't yet underneath Lake Powell as it is today, um, kind of a nice, peaceful stretch of the river, and then finally into the Grand Canyon. And they ended the trip at, at Lake Mead. Um, so it took more than 40 days to do that journey journey. And uh, they spent a lot of time trying to figure out simply kind of how to tackle the rapids. Um, nowadays, river runners know a lot about how to approach rapids, but they were kind of figuring out as they went. And they ended up actually walking around a lot of them or taking the boats out and dragging the boats around a lot of them because they were quite nervous about, about handling this high water. And because of that, there wasn't as much time for plant collecting as Elzada Clover had hoped. Um, that was one of her big frustrations. She was spending a lot lot of time just trying to help them get the boats downriver. And by the way, the women were doing all of the cooking morning and night. Um, so they were quite busy with these other tasks. Science and cooking. Yes. Yes. Science, science and cooking. That's right. Yep. Yep. So they ended up uh, having to get up very early and collect plants or stay up very late and collect plants often after dark. And I was really impressed with how detailed they made these incredibly detailed notes, not just about the cutting they were making, but you know, the entire environment around it. And what they had to do is they would, you know, they would cut the plant. If it was a cactus, they would have to scoop out the pulp inside of it. And then they would press it between sheets of newspaper. For cactus, you had to keep all of the spines and stickers intact. So you imagine this is a little bit tricky, right? What did they do, slice it or something? Right, you would slice it lengthwise, like if you had a cactus pad, and then you would scoop out the pulp, press it flat, try to make it look as natural as possible, just like it was when it was growing. And then the whole thing would be stacked. You know, you'd get layers of plants and newspapers stacked up, and you'd put it between two pieces of wood, and you'd kind of cinch it tight. And this was called a plant press. So they would create these plant presses as they went down the river. They kept them in the hatches of the boats, which were supposed to be waterproof, but they didn't really turn out that way. So they were really struggling, trying to keep these collections kind of safe and dry along the way. And whenever they got a chance, they'd actually mail these bundles of plants back to the University of Michigan because they were so nervous about the boats capsizing or some disaster befalling them that they wanted to preserve this collection um, and make sure at least some of it got back home. I learned a little bit about botany. I certainly didn't know before because I know so very little about botany. And that's about not just picking a plant here or a plant there and putting it on the map, but looking at plant migration. Right, yeah. You know, um, th this was a time, you know, 1938, when the, the word ecosystem didn't really exist. It had just been invented, but nobody was really using it yet. And so what interested me about their journey was, you know, how are they looking at these plants as part of an ecosystem, even though they didn't have the vocabulary to to describe that. And they really were doing that. They were talking about, you know, the soils, the topography, the angle of the sunlight, the effect of, you know, little mice or deer coming along and nibbling on the plants. All of this today we would describe as ecosystem science. Um, but they were sort of just feeling it out as they went along. So one of the questions they had was uh, whether plants migrated or moved along the river corridor. Were they um, kind of extending their ranges? The Grand Canyon is kind of at the intersection of three different deserts all with their unique ecology and plants. So they wanted to see if how those deserts were kind of meeting and mingling and moving up and down the river corridor. And that's a pretty 
you know, sophistic sophisticated question for um for the capabilities they had, which really weren't much, right? They were busy trying to get down this river and collect the plants, but they still had these big scientific questions they wanted to answer. And I have to say, there were no satellite pictures, so they're depending on the maps of those before them and the trust in that, there were no phones, satellite phones, there were no you know, they were really out there. Right. Yeah. Very few resources compared to the, the way ecological science gets done today. It was just them and these plant presses made out of newspaper. And, you know, off they went trying to get the best answers that they could. Now, another thing that I liked is that occasionally they would stop and then trek away from these canyons. And, and uh, I was especially taken with them trekking off to Rainbow Bridge. Right. Yeah. Rainbow Bridge is a, a spot in the Glen Canyon region. It's now kind of more on the shores of Lake Powell, but at the time it was a bit of a hike away from the river. And that was one of the kind of rare occasions when they stopped and they really took the time to make a, a hike um, out of the river corridor. Elzada and her original proposal for this trip intended to do a lot of that because she was very curious about what kind of plants lived in these like beautiful tributaries along the river. But of course, they, they were always late and they were always in a rush and they rarely had time for those kinds of hikes. So Rainbow Bridge was special. They all wanted to go see it. Um, it's a sacred site to Navajo, Hopi, Paiute, um, Paiute and, and other tribes in this area. Um, and it's a, it's a natural stone arch um, that's, I think, almost 300 feet tall. Um, so it's really kind of an incredible place. And they, you know, you could tell that they, they really were interested in this region and they wanted to take the time to see it as much as they could. Now, they just didn't start at the beginning and then go all the way to the end. There were a number of stopping places that they had planned on, and that way they could you know, ship away some of these specimens as well as get more provisions and all that type of thing. And when they were late at one particular spot, it set off a national media frenzy. What does a national media frenzy look like in 1938? Right. Isn't that fascinating? I was really um, just kind of enthralled by the newspaper articles covering this trip. They were supposed to arrive at, at Lee's Ferry, which is kind of the, the stopping point at the head of the Grand Canyon um, on the 4th of July. And they they didn't make it. And, you know, they have no idea. They have no contact with the outside world at this point. They're just, you know, headed down the river. And so they have no idea that the newspapers has have picked up on their non-appearance as and kind of blown it up into this like national disaster. Um, so there were headline front page stories all around the nation talking about this lost expedition that hadn't appeared. The water was still quite high. And so there were, um, you know, stories of like federal employees who were watching the river for the wreckage that might come down, you know, like waiting to see the pieces of the boat float by. Um, and there were stories about, uh, uh, well, you know, the U.S. Coast Guard eventually went out and went looking for them. So it, it it got quite serious. And the interesting thing about the newspaper articles was there there was a lot of focus on the women. Right. This was uh, one of the, one of the rare attempts by women to go down this river. And, um, you know, it, there was just there was kind of a fixation on the fact that women were attempting this trip. And there was a lot of criticism of, you know, the idea that the trip had gone badly because the women were there. And so it was quite interesting to to see that response. I think the newspaper coverage would not have been quite as hysterical, I would say, if the women hadn't been involved. 
And TWA, which Transworld Airlines, which was a big airline at the time and is no longer with us, the TWA planes out of Los Angeles changed their route so they would fly over the area so that the passengers could see if they could see people or boats down there. Maybe they would discover them from one of these flights. I mean, it was we're talking about a whole lot of fixation on this um, at a time when News was relatively slow. Right, right. It became kind of a national obsession. And yeah, I can just imagine all of those folks in the planes, like craning their neck and looking out the window, being like, can I see like a destroyed boat down there? You know, pretty, pretty crazy stuff. Now, you did mention earlier uh, the letters of uh, Lois Jotter to her father. What other kinds of particular sources were you able to get to put this together? Luckily for me, both women kept detailed diaries, and they had the foresight to preserve those diaries and and donate them to universities. Um, I think without that, I I wouldn't have been able to tell this story. Um, They were wonderful writers. They were both very funny, you know, so their diaries were just full of these wonderfully rich details. Um, There were several other diaries by some of the men on the trip, um, you know, and, and also these letters that they were writing anytime they got a chance to post a letter home and basically say, I'm safe, I'm alive, you know, they would do that. And so those also were just full of wonderfully descriptive details. And um, I'm really grateful for those archives. And I'm grateful for the universities and the libraries that kept and preserved those materials. Because it was it was really just a joy to kind of dive into that and, and uncover this story that I think had been forgotten. Now, do the cuttings of Elzada Clover and Lois Jodder survive? Can we see them? The, the plant cuttings? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the the plant cuttings that they took during that trip are archived at various herbaria around the country. Um, I think almost a dozen of dozen different places around the country have samples of these plants that were collected in 1938. And that's really cool. You can actually see scans of them online if you search for them. You know, you can find um, scans of these pressed plants and they're being preserved for research. Um, it's kind of wonderful that we have these basically plant libraries where researchers now, if they have questions about um, certain plants or about what things look like back then, they could go look at these plants and, and sometimes study them with advanced techniques that weren't available at the time. Now, you mentioned you took a similar journey down the river. How did going down the river affect you and affect your perspective on this story? That's a great question. Yeah. As as soon as I got the book contract, I, um, I kind of knew I was going to have to go run the Grand Canyon myself, and I was very nervous. Um, that's not something that I had on my bucket list, to be honest. I am not a whitewater river rafter. I had never done a journey like that before. Um, and so I, I joined a botany crew, actually. Um, I wanted to see not only what it was like to experience the river, but also to have to do botany work along the way. And so I joined a crew that was weeding out an invasive species of grass, um, and we did a two-week trip through the Grand Canyon together. And it was it was an incredible experience. I think it was good that I was nervous. Um, I think I was able to to channel what Elzada and Lois must have felt. You know, they were going into this with very little idea of what was ahead. No good maps, no good equipment. You know, the accounts that they had read of this journey were tended to be pretty exaggerated and pretty frightening. So it was incredible that they went anyway. And I think my nervousness helped help kind of channel some of that. I definitely had a lot more idea of what I was getting into than they did, but I was still a little afraid. Um, and I was, it was incredible. I mean, it's, 
undescribable at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and experiencing it by river is very different than hiking through it, which I had done. Um, there's something about traveling down river that's just, you know, your entire world narrows down to this canyon with these high walls and this swift moving water and the rest of the world kind of disappears and becomes very unreal while you're down there. Um, and just being immersed in that was just an incredible experience. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you come back. See us again. Thanks so much, Moira. My guest today is Melissa Seveny. Her book is Brave the Wild River, the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon. It's published by W.W. Norton. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Complete Tech Nation programs or solely biotech podcasts are available wherever you get your podcasts. Check out technation.com or biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, pack your rattlesnake gators and your 357 Smith & Wesson. Botany is not a science for the timid. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation. When I think of pharmaceuticals and biopharmaceuticals, I think of all the sophisticated science which goes into creating them. I think of all the years of education and research that are needed to simply come up with an idea for medical treatment that just might work. But if you are Emory Professor Cassandra Quave, you turn to plants. She's here today with The Plant Hunter, a scientist's quest for Nature's Next Medicines. Cassandra, welcome to Tech Nation. Hi, great to be here. Now, before modern technology, you know, where you could chemically stamp out one identical pill of aspirin after another or biologically brew one biopharmaceutical after another, the human race used plants to treat all manner of illnesses and human conditions, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an amazing thing to think about because we have around 374,000 species of plants on earth 
And humans, over years of trial and error and sharing knowledge of what works and what doesn't, have sorted out that there are at least 33,000 plants with medicinal properties that have been used in, at some stage in traditional medicine. I think that's just amazing. It's 9% of all plant life has had some medicinal role. And I mentioned aspirin, and that started with a plant as well. Absolutely, yeah. You can find aspirin in willow trees and also in a little, um, beautiful little herb in the rose family known as meadowsweet that grows in, in meadows. Now, before all this modern technology was available, these sturdy souls all over the world went out and looked for plants routinely. And you look for plants. You opened the book describing taking six students into this sort of waterlogged, swampy area in Florida looking for plants. But to my surprise, you were packing a 357 Smith & Wesson pistol. <laughs> Is it that dangerous hunting plants? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I grew up in, in South Florida where I, and the area where I was working was actually on a large cattle ranch was where we were. And there happens to be a 15 foot alligator that's known to roam <laughs> around that swamp. So in that case we have, you know, I don't know. It was just the way I was raised. When you go into, you know, gator territory, you go prepared. Um, but we don't always, you know, need a pistol when we're out collecting plants. For the most time, we, we don't. We might sometimes need things like, you know, snake gators to protect our legs from rattlesnakes um, or other gear. It really depends on the ecosystem where we're working. What were you looking for there? Well, we were looking for different um, medicinal plants to study in the laboratory. So I'm really interested in plants that have a history of traditional use in medicine to treat infectious and inflammatory skin diseases. So before this trip, my students and I had scoured the literature looking for, you know, um, records of different types of wild plants found in the Southeast U.S. that were used to treat everything from you know, respiratory problems to sexually transmitted diseases to burns, lacerations, wounds, anything that oozes or pusses. I mean, those are the plants I want to go after, the ones that are used for those conditions. In fact, you mentioned that there was one particular plant that was used by the Cherokee and the Choctaw people in one way, but the Seminole used it in another. Yeah, I mean, that's something we see all the time in the field of ethnobotany. So ethnobotany is the scientific study of how people use plants, not just for medicine, but also for food and um, for structure, for music, for all sorts of different um, applications. And, you know, even where you have different peoples using the same species, there can be very, you know, large differences in how the plant is used, how it's prepared from one cultural tradition to another. Um, and this is something we commonly see um, all over the world, that there are cultural lenses that make a big difference in how plants are utilized by people. So one of the plants that we were collecting in that particular swamp was a species known as Sororis cernus, also known as lizard's tail. And it has this really beautiful kind of delicate, you know, cluster of flowers along the stalk. And it had different types of uses in, in, in the traditions of native peoples of the Southeast U.S. We had, for example, the Cherokee use it to make a poultice for applications to wounds, which is one of the main reasons I was interested in it, because we're very interested in any types of plants are applied topically to wounds or infections, because that could be a good indicator that there might be some antimicrobial um, compounds there. 
But on the other hand, the, the Seminole people use the whole plant to treat spider bites. Again, where you might still have some infectious, you know, signals there. Oftentimes people will confuse staph infections with um, a spider bite because you can have that little bit of a necrotic center to um, the wound. And so, yeah, we're, we're looking for those types of clues when we're hunting for different plants to study. Now, these plants are out in the wild. Are they the same that have been coming down through generations and generations of humans? Or are they mutating? Do we have the same plants? I mean, so wild species, you know, can be influenced, obviously, by climatic changes. The expression of different chemicals by plants can be influenced also by you know, the amount of rainfall or the species that are growing around them or pest load and things like that, they can change um, to some degree their production of different types of what we call secondary metabolites or kind of defense compounds. But, you know, if these are, you know, these, these types of plants found in the wild, you know, continue to be used in traditional medicine, I think that's an important distinction to make. We talk, I talk a lot about history in the book, but I also talk about present day uses, you know, the the truth of the matter is, is that there are billions with a B, billions of people across the globe that every day rely on plants as their primary form of medicine. This is not, you know, some herb to boost immune resilience in a smoothie or a dietary supplement like we no? think of herbs um, <laughs> in the West. I mean, this is, you know, when they have different types of complaints, whether it's an infection or stomach ache or headache or whatever, you know, medical issue it is, like there are billions of people that rely on plants for medicine. So our work is not just about, you know, looking for plants as a source of drugs for the next generation of, you know, discovery of new medications, but it's also about trying to develop a better understanding and appreciation for those plants that people continue to use today and to really understand how they work, if they work, and what their safety profiles look like. Because out of those 33,000 species I mentioned earlier, you know, the number of plants that have been really rigorously evaluated by scientists is in the very low hundreds. I mean, we really don't know much at all when it comes to the, the pharmacological potential of plants. And yet, we know from history lessons that we've found some of our most important medicines from plants, whether it's for the treatment of cancer or pain or malaria, you know, the list goes on and on. There's a lot out there for us still to explore and discover. Now you are the herbarium, maybe I said that wrong, herbarium curator at Emory University. What does that mean? So when most people hear the term herbarium, they think of herbs and maybe some beautiful lush plants or a greenhouse yeah, or garden, yeah. right? But that's, no, that's not <laughs> It means you got a really is. nice office, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, an herbarium is, is a collection of dead plants. So I always say, oh. I, you know, it's, it's a collection of dead plants that have been collected in the wild while alive, dried, pressed flat, and then affixed to acid-free paper. And these are really research specimens as part of a natural history museum. And so these specimens can be used to document where a certain plant existed at a certain point of time and what state it was found in. Was it flowering? Was it in fruit? Was it just in a vegetative state? And so there are millions of these types of specimens all around the world. And this is really how we understand and document the diversity of life in different parts of the world. 
Um, so it's a really big part of our of our research program is the ability to authenticate and and have these validated specimens. Because let's say, for example, let's say I want to publish a paper saying, you know, reporting on some research findings, discovery of a new compound that has a potent medical, you know, implications. If I don't have a way of showing an authenticated specimen, who's to know what plant I actually collected? So it's the proof in the pudding, right, that this came from this plant. Um, and it's extremely important to the kind of research that we do. And how many plants do you have thus far at Emory? Um, we're a relatively small collection. We have around 23,000 specimens. There are other herbaria, for example, in Paris and London and New York that are, you know, have millions of specimens and huge teams of botanists that work on curation and, and taking care of those. But as a, as a you know, we're a, a modestly sized um, university research collection. Now, you're not just running around trying to collect plants. You've, you really are trying to get a few things done. Now, in the in the case of antibiotics and antibiotic resistance, you're not saying, I'm going to find something that's bigger and more powerful. I've got to, I'm going to get a real big antibiotic here. You're looking at ways to overcome that resistance or to, to improve the antibiotics we have. And I, I know that you were interested in plants that disrupt the biofilm, which can come from or be an indicator of antibiotic resistance. Now, can you explain that? What does that mean? Yeah, so let's let's think about a simple a simple example. I think most of the audience has probably observed a rock in a stream. And if you've ever picked up a rock or, or, or kind of laid your hand across it and you feel that kind of slimy, smooth feeling to it, that's because of a microbial community that has become affixed to that solid substrate, in this case to the rock in the stream. Anytime that you rub your tongue over your teeth in the morning, you feel that kind of grit on your teeth, that's you know where plaque formation is happening. That's an oral biofilm. So biofilm is, is basically a word that we use to describe how microbial communities can kind of build up and uh, adhere to surfaces. Now, in the body, this can obviously be quite problematic. If you can imagine if you have a knee replacement and if you had, you know, a biofilm form on that knee replacement, that's a problem because when they're in that, that kind of stage of life, they not only... Um, have the benefit of having this kind of slime layer that they're embedded in, which is difficult for antibiotics to penetrate. Um, it's also difficult for your immune system to penetrate, but they also importantly slow down their growth rates or the metabolism is slowed down. And so our antibiotics that we use today work on rapidly dividing cells. And so if you slow down your metabolism, this is one other way that the microbes can evade antibiotic activity. And so when I'm looking at these plants, let's say, as I mentioned earlier, I'm looking at a plant that has a history of traditional medical use for some sort of infection or wound or sore that is likely to have a microbial cause. Some of the questions that we're asking is, okay, well, are there chemicals in this plant that can either kill the bacteria or slow down their growth like you would see in a classic antibiotic? Or are there compounds that can, you know, stop their ability or block their ability to stick to surfaces in a biofilm? 
Or could it be that these compounds interfere with the way the bacteria communicate with one another? Because microbial communication is really key to the infection process. It's how you have all these little single-celled entities that are able to, you know, really coordinate their behavior and cause more damage and expand in your body because you're their host um, during the infection cycle. And so we're asking lots of different questions because I think that that's one really beautiful thing that traditional medicine can offer us is new ways of thinking about how to treat infectious disease. Do we always have to kill the organisms or are there ways to kind of shift the balance more towards the body's favor rather than the pathogen's favor? You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Cassandra Quave. She's an associate professor of dermatology and human health at Emory University in Atlanta. She's also the co-founder, CEO, and chief scientific officer of Phytotech, a drug discovery company. She's here today with The Plant Hunter, a scientist quest for nature's next medicines. Now, throughout your book, you talk about your personal medical journey. You were born with the lower portion of your right leg underdeveloped. Let's start there. Yeah. So, I mean, I was born in the late 1970s, the time when, you know, it wasn't that common for, you know, mothers to be to have, you know, ultrasound and kind of diagnostic evaluations throughout the pregnancy. And so when I was born, my, my series of birth defects were quite a surprise. Um, and in fact, the physicians didn't really know what the ultimate consequences would be. I was born um, without the fibula, which is kind of that bone that goes where your calf muscle is. My femur or my thigh bone was also very short. My platella or my kneecap was underdeveloped. And then there were multiple bones in my foot and ankle that were missing. And my tibia, which is the other lower leg bone, was also very short. So if you can imagine, you know, one normal looking leg and the other one was kind of small, much smaller and with the bottom of the foot only reaching maybe mid-calf um, and missing bones. And so, you know, initially there were concerns, you know, not only about the bone defects, but could there also be complications with my mental development and they really didn't know what was going on or what caused it. And my early childhood was a series of one doctor's visit after another. I was immediately put into a cast, you know, after being born to protect the leg. Um, and I wasn't, you know, I was able to walk with the help of some pretty serious orthotic devices and a very, very thick soled shoe, but I wasn't very stable. And I was basically facing a lifetime of constant no possibilities of breakages in the bones because of those missing bones and the lack of support that was needed. And so when I was three years old, after visiting many specialists and getting many different second opinions, um, my parents made the very difficult decision to um, pursue an amputation because, you know, the doctors all concurred that this would be a way for me to um, increase my mobility through the use of a prosthetic leg. And, um, you know, I've had almost 30 surgeries since then because of other bone defects with my hip and my back. I mean, I, I always joke that I'm a million dollar woman. There's probably a million dollars worth of medical investment in just getting me up and moving um, from all these surgeries. But I also faced some pretty serious complications out of those surgeries. And that's one thing that's kind of helped drive my career towards looking for new solutions to infectious disease. 
when I had my leg amputated, um, I acquired a really serious hospital um, infection. It was a staph infection. I had staph and gangrene in my in my legs um, at the amputation site. Lost almost all of the soft tissues around the bone, um, and had to have my leg further further clipped back. And so, the long term consequences of that have been that I have you know no padding under my bone. Most amputees, if you have an amputation, the doctors try and leave a you know, a good inch or so of kind of fatty tissue under your bones. You have a pad to walk on and get, it's, it's less painful that way. Um, allows for more impact. So if you can imagine, you see amputees that can run and jump and do all these things. And I'm, I'm pretty active, but I am certainly not an athlete. <laughs> I'm certainly not able to run really effectively because, um, because of that infection, I have nothing but a very thin layer of scar tissue under my bone. And so that I've had the kind of lifelong consequences of that, but luckily, you know, didn't die from the infection, which was a very real possibility at the time. And it didn't stop you from hunting plants. That's the that's right. Important part. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. So let's get back to hunting plants. Um, let's talk about shamans you have met. Yeah, you know, uh, and and the ones that you have met, you know, were they forthcoming? And you know, in what way? What what would they share with you? Yeah, so I had this amazing opportunity um, the summer before my senior year of college to travel to the Peruvian Amazon and kind of work as a as an intern at a research station there. And my job was to volunteer in the gardens that were taken care of by a local um, healer, uh, ayahuasca shaman. His, his name was um, Don Antonio Montero Pisco. And, you know, Don Antonio and I had a really special relationship. He loved um, you know, he was a prankster, but he was also very much a serious, serious and dedicated medical provider. Um, and he was an amazing teacher and he really took me under his wing. And I feel so incredibly grateful for those opportunities because, you know, at the time I was a pre-medical student, heavily, you know, immersed in Western medicine since birth, basically, um, where all I'd ever known was pharmacology and surgery. That's what medicine is. It's drugs or the knife. And with Don Antonio, what he really opened my eyes to was the fact that medicine can be about so much more. It can be about those relationships with your patients, but also kind of the spiritual aspects to healing. And what is the difference between a healer versus a doctor? I mean, Western medical doctors can also be healers. It's about that extra level of connection with your patients and kind of treating the whole person rather than a symptom or some isolated piece of a person. Um, and, you know, years later, I went on to study with other, you know, healers in different parts of the world, you know, in, in Southern Italy, with these amazing women that, you know, had carried on practices of kind of ritual healing practices that involved plants and really intricate kind of uh, verbal formulas and, 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 and rituals that went into that. But they shared some commonalities with what Don Antonio did and, and with regards to that kind of interface with the patient and the connectivity. And it was through those interactions I really started to appreciate not only, you know, is medicine about surgery and pharmacology, but also you know, there are whole other levels um, to it. There's so much detail that's wrapped up into these cultural traditions. I can give you another example of specifically for a medicine, and that's some work that we've done in the Balkans where 
you know, they make a kind of oil-based infusion of St. John's wort flowers. And I was always curious about the use of, of these flowers in this way, because what's interesting is when you, when you, when they create this medicine, they put it into a glass bottle and leave it in the sun for 40 days. They're very specific about the days and it has ties back to other kind of cultural traditions um, in the region. But the oil turns this bright red, kind of blood red color. And that's what they apply to their skin to treat all sorts of different problems, wounds, rashes, cuts. I mean, they're constantly rubbing this on their skin for any kind of skin complaint. But one thing that's interesting about St. John's wort is there are actually compounds that are that can cause phototoxicity. Basically, if you consume these compounds and expo are exposed to sunshine, you can get a pretty severe sunburn. But these people weren't having these sorts of skin reactions. And in order to understand how, I, I took some of the oil back to the lab and we looked at the chemical makeups of that um, traditional formulation versus what kinds of St. John's wort tinctures we could buy at the local market. And what we found is that the traditional, the traditional method of preparing it resulted in removal or breakdown, a chemical breakdown of the toxic compound while keeping some of the other health-promoting compounds. And so it's just mind-blowing to me because this is, this is like serious chemistry, but it's wrapped up in ritual and it has really serious implications for the pharmacological activity of the final product. They also had the same problem that we address today. You know, in clinical trials, it's constantly, what are the dosages? Who do we try what on for how long? They constantly have to deal with dosage. When you think about the differences between poison and medicine, it comes down just to dose and intent. I mean, any medicine can be a poison at the wrong dose. And, you know, another misconception that people have is they have this false sense that anything that is natural is safe. And I can tell you it's not. There are a lot of very poisonous, you know, chemicals, including, you know, many of the plant-derived medicines. If we think about some of the cancer medications, those are quite poisonous if, if taken at the wrong doses. But if taken at the right dose in the right way, um, they can, you know, help treat your cancer and cure, cure you of disease. So I think... There's definitely, um, plants are powerful. There, there, there are a lot of very active compounds there, and, and many of which still remain to be discovered. Now, you take us through your eventual success getting a lot of research grants and what you worked on and where you visited and, and, and many of the people you interacted with. Um, but like many scientists, when COVID came along, when SARS-CoV-2 came along, you pivoted. What have you been working on vis-a-vis -vis COVID? Yeah. Um, so like, like so many scientists, you know, there was this burning need I felt to do something, to do something to help. I mean, we started off just by making huge vats of hand sanitizer for the clinical research teams and, and clinicians in my department even, and, you know, getting these, these um, dispensers of, you know, I don't know how many in the audience remember this, but it was really hard to come by hand sanitizer. Um, and so, you know, word would get out in groups that were running trials for, you know, the antigen test and, and things like that that were being developed actively at the time. So we started off just by helping get those very simple supplies because we had the ingredients in the lab. I had drums of IPA, of isopropyl alcohol as part of our extraction process, you know, in our chemistry team. 
And so we were able to make this fall in the WHO's recipe, which was was very satisfying to be able to help people out that were out really working with people in, in the clinic well before they had the protections of, of vaccines. Um, so that was one thing we did. And then, you know, like many others, I was looking for a way to to pitch in when it came to our research. I mean, one thing that we have that's really, I think, unique in the world is we have a large collection of plant-derived extracts that were specifically selected from plants that have a history of use of infectious inflammatory disease. And so including, you know, microbial pathogens of, of different types, bacterial cause, fungal cause, viral cause. And so the thing that was challenging with COVID, of course, is a new coronavirus. There wasn't a history of traditional medicine use for that specific coronavirus, but we knew that we had all these plant extracts in our library that could potentially have some chemistries that could work against the virus. Now, the challenge, of course, is that to work with the live virus at the volumes that we needed, we would need access to a biosafety level three laboratory, which we didn't have. Our laboratory is biosafety level two. There are BSL-3 labs at Emory where such work is being done um, but access to those has been really tight because there's a lot of people that need to work in these, you know, for many different aspects of the viral study. And so what we did instead is I kind of kept an eye on the literature and kept reading and waiting. And then finally, some folks came out with some nice um, reporter-based assays, basically with um, pseudovirions. So you're taking a piece of the virus attached onto another type of virus and basically if that piece of the virus, in this case, the spike protein, is able to connect with the ACE2 receptors, which are the receptors on our human cells that the virus attaches to, then we would see um, a light reaction, kind of a glow-in-the-dark reaction. And so we use that tool um, to test our entire chemical library looking for um, activity. <laughs> yeah, botanicals that could potentially block that, that step in the viral replication cycle. And we found, we, we found some nice hits. This is work that's being led primarily by um, one of my uh, graduate students, by Caitlin Risner, who's a graduate student in the Molecular and Systems Pharmacology program. Just amazing work. She's working also with some undergraduates in the lab that have contributed to this. Um, and she's getting close to submitting her first paper where we really report on three of these extracts that we've narrowed down on out of more than you know around 2,000 that we tested. Um, and this includes safety data and things like that in cell models. So um, we're making progress. It's, science never goes as fast as you hope it would, um, but we're making progress. And, and it's exciting to see um, what we found so far. Well, Cassandra, this has been terrific. I, I hope you come back and see us. Uh, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. <laughs> Thank you so much. Emory Professor Dr. Cassandra Quave is the author of The Plant Hunter, a Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicine. It's published by Viking. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. 
Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.